comes the sun, da-da-da-da, here comes the sun, and I said, it's all right, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-
But for this first topic, the thing I wanted to add to on the apologetic, and I think this is actually the most vital, like why I didn't put this in drives me crazy last week. I kind of hinted at it a little bit in the final point, but it was actually the idea that started me thinking I want to do a podcast on apologetics, and then I didn't even get to the thing that I wanted to get to because I got all lost on other stuff, and now I want to come back to it right now. And that answer is you, your, your display of your Christian faith or my display of my Christian faith in the real world is our greatest apologetic, right? Like when you go back to the early church, for example, and when Peter tells them, hey, always have a reason for the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and respect that whole wonderful thing that he says right there. Again, one of the most profound ways the church leveraged its apologetic is that it had an impeccable witness in its world. Uh, And in particular, it took seriously what Jesus told them to do and told them how to live and told them how to face suffering, hardship, rejection, persecution, difficulty, whatever it was. Like, Like what they did is they looked at the problems of life and they didn't complain about them and moan and lament and be frustrated at. There was this sturdiness and resilience and this sense of transcendent endurance, right? Like the, the stuff you see of Paul in Philippians chapter four, that that's kind of the, the, the template that you want to use. Like, oh, okay, I've learned to be content in all circumstances, right? So when the economy is tanking and there's a global crisis and, you know, I'm, I'm being told to do certain things I don't want to do by the government and, and gas prices are high and all that stuff that, that our response is like, Hey man, God's in control. I love him. I love you. It's all going to be good. I'm not mad at the world. I'm not frustrated by events. I'm trusting God. And I'm going to let this bad circumstance be fertile ground for me to show just how good God is. Like that will get people's attention because that's an apologetic you can't argue with. Like people can easily argue and debate the issues of science and we can debate the issues of evolution and we can debate the issues of, of kind of like social morality and how it came. Did it come through social evolutionary cycles? Did it come divine from a book that was given to us? And like all those debates can happen. But you know, it's really hard to argue with a person that is chill when the world is falling apart. That's a very difficult person to argue with. And I believe that that is the strongest, most potent apologetic that we need to lean into. Because when I watch the transformation of the Roman Empire, I go, okay, this was a much more barbaric time. There was a whole lot less value on human life. Um, the, the Romans had no problem using the store to maintain peace. Christians were seen as a legitimate threat as far as they weren't willing to bow their knee to the divine Caesar. That's really what Christians got themselves in the most trouble for. They weren't causing any other trouble. They weren't revolutionaries in any other way. They were pacifists almost exclusively. And so what was really driving the friction between Christians and Rome was just the fact that Christians, they just wouldn't worship Caesar as God. They're like, we follow only Jesus. And then when they were confronted with their you know, their, their law breaking, they didn't go, no, man, I got rights. Screw you. You know, like they didn't do that. They were just like, all right, I'll die for Jesus. That's fine. I'll be in prison for Jesus. And then like Paul in prison, like singing songs, you know what I mean? Instead of being like, this is crap. Caesar sucks. You know, they were just like singing songs, you know? And so honestly, I, I, I look at all of that. I go, yes, that is our apologetic. And again, like what we learned last week, we can all do that if, Going back to the very first part of our series in the uh, kind of 
ditching the evangelicalism of our lives and embracing the Christ-centeredness of our lives. If we lean into the Holy Spirit, because he gave us the Holy Spirit to do these things, if we lean into him, that is where we're going to find that strength. Because it's only going to be when our mind is set on the Spirit, we're walking in the Spirit, we're filled with the Spirit, that then love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit flows through our lives. And among those things are things like self-control, right? So patience and self-control are kind of what we need in this apologetic of living our lives with a sturdiness and a joy in the midst of everything falling apart. And if there's ever a time that the the world would benefit greatly from that apologetic, it's right now. And I don't just simply mean when you look at the issues of Ukraine or you look at the issues of Soaring gas prices or the unknowns of the economy or what's going to happen in the next couple of years or the elections that are coming up in the midterms or all that stuff that's just chaff blown into the air, right? It's like just flack getting thrown up to try to knock down the bombers. Like that's not the thing I'm talking about. And part of what I'm talking about is when you look at uh, our young people, for example, and you look at all of the information around the anxiety of our young people, the depression of our young people, the uncertainty of our young people, the level of suicidal rates among our young people. And I don't just mean like teenagers. I'm talking 20s, 30s, 40s, because I'm in my 50s now. Even among 50-year-olds, like suicide rates for 40 to 50-year-old men are incredibly high, right? Like all of that stuff, all that anxiety, discouragement, depression, uncertainty, just the list is on and on and on. What it needs is us to lean hard into the spirit. So the spirit does that stuff in and through us so that then people go, wow, you don't seem anxious or depressed in normal ways. Now, I don't want to take out of the equation here that for some of us, you know what, we also need some medical intervention there. For some of us, we need medicative aid there. So I don't want to remove that from the equation. So don't start to misread me and be like, oh, so if I just walk in the spirit, I won't be depressed. Not my point. My point is we need to lean hard in the spirit and ask him to fill in those gaps that he can fill in when it comes to those areas of anxiety, depression, and the like. And then also, if you need medical attention, please do that. I'm an advocate of that. I'm a supporter of that. But we want to be kind of opportunistic operating at our peak as followers of Jesus. And the way we operate at our peak is that stuff in Romans 8, that set your mind on the spirit. Because it, when you set your mind on the spirit, it's it's joy and peace, right? That's what Paul says when our mind is set on the spirit. When our mind is set on the flesh, which is what I think a lot of times is what's happening among us, even as followers of Jesus and our culture, we're setting our minds on the flesh of the news, we're setting our minds on the flesh of the economy. We're setting our minds on the flesh of warfare. We're setting our minds on the flesh of social division and chaos. We're setting our minds on the, 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 the flesh of politics. You know, there's so many things you can set your mind on where it's, it's dictating your responses. It's dictating your affections. It's, it's dictating your fears, right? And, and, and so this is where, I, again, I want to push really hard to go, but the greatest apologetic we can have is that thing where Paul says, I've learned the secret in much or little. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've learned contentment in all spaces. That comes when we set our mind on the spirit. So uh, just as the added apologetic and probably the most potent and the one that we all have the 
ability to access access to or have access to. Like you don't have to be like uh, you know a, a 150 and above IQ individual to memorize all of the apologetic points and then spit them out in rapid order for those who have questions. No, this is something every single follower of Jesus can do. It doesn't matter your academic level. It doesn't matter how much you've studied your Bible or not. You just simply have to say, man, I got hope. Let me give you a reason for the hope that lies within me. And then you're just living that out, right? So your your Christian faith expressed, and it's not just in the problems of life, but I, but I think in general, it's just like when we're expressing a gracious, authentic Christian faith, that's going to be powerful. In fact, I was even talking to somebody this week and it was, we were talking about the fact that Christians are often called hypocritical and how hypocritical that is because the whole world is hypocritical. And, and I, I kind of get that, but I also kind of push back and I go, the reason we're called hypocritical more often is because we actually believe in a certain standard and we believe there's a God over that standard and there's a God watching our lives in relationship to that standard. And so how much do we really believe this God if we're not willing to actually obey this God? And therefore it makes people think that we're more hypocritical because we feel more weight behind what we claim to believe and what we believe we're told to do, right? So all of that was in there, right? And from that, what my conclusion was is, hey, I don't think the world would have a problem with Christians being hypocritical if, in conjunction with that, we're humble. I think their issue is when you're critical and you seem, or when you're hypocritical and you also seem critical of the world, that's their problem. Or when we're hypocritical and we seem judgmental of the world, that's the problem. But I believe if we are hypocritical yet humble, all the more, I think the world will be like, okay, we're on the same page now, right? And this comes back again to just, hey, man, have an authentic Christian life, have an authentic Christian expression, really lean hard into the spirit to do these things in you, and then live out your Christianity in a humble way to those around you. And that will be, my friends, a very powerful apologetic. So that's what it comes down to. And what that comes down to then is kind of the topic of the day, which is faith faith. And again, I talked about at the beginning, you could take faith in all sorts of directions and see it in all sorts of ways. But the kind I'm talking about is sort of related to the previous thing, which is the faith to actually live out what Jesus calls us to do. Because that's the thing I'm really certain of is, is I love to bang the drum on the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, right? The kingdom is what counts. Jesus talks about the kingdom 150 times in the gospels, more than any singular topic. And a lot of times when you ask a Christian, well, describe to me what the gospel of the kingdom is. What is the kingdom? What is the gospel of the kingdom? There's a lot of like, ah, geez, I don't know. I think it's this. I think it's that. Like, it's amazing that this was the stake and the ground that Jesus pounded, right? For three years, he pounded that stake and he's like, man, my kingdom's coming. I've brought my kingdom. You're members of my kingdom. You're citizens of my kingdom. You're supposed to do kingdom stuff. And then we're kind of like, I don't know what the kingdom is, right? So, so really the, the essence of the kingdom is that upside down and backwards criteria that Jesus sets for his people to live out in the real world that is backwards from the real world. And so that's why I talk about the Sermon on the Mountain, the Sermon on the Plain all the time. That's not the only ways we live out the kingdom, but those are really concrete bite-sized morsels and rapid succession that go, oh, this gives me some direction on what this looks like. And it even articulates to me how it is very different than the way the world gets stuff done. I highlight that because having been in the church for 30 years, I've seen many ministry contexts that way more rely on worldly means and worldly ends and worldly tools to get ministry done than they do the Sermon on the Mount or the way of the kingdom. Like there is, you know, like just we use earthly power structures to get Jesus stuff done sometimes. And I think that's sort of an undermining of the kingdom for the sake of Jesus. I'm not always saying it's wrong or sinful, but I, I just want to try to 
force feed us back to, okay, well, what does then kingdom living look like in the real world? And those are the passages that I think really stand out. They're not the only ones, but I think they're ones that give some vivid detail to some of that, right? So then this comes down to what is the nature of faith in relationship to kingdom stuff? In other words, is faith simply saying, I believe it. I really believe it. I believe with my whole heart in Jesus and what Jesus said. I have no doubt that Jesus said it. I believe the scriptures 100%. I believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the central template that the whole Christian faith stands on. Jesus is the central figure that the whole faith stands on. I sing with conviction. I pray with conviction. I believe with conviction. And that's my faith. Is that faith or is faith All of that maybe, and I also do exactly what he tells me to do, to the best of my ability, relying on him. Or or maybe even, maybe faith can be, I might even struggle with some of that. In fact, maybe some of the deepest faith can be, I struggle with certain things about God. I struggle with certain things about the Bible. I struggle with even whether I'm positive there's something after this life But for all of my doubt and struggle in these different nuances and cracks and crevices, I'm still going to do what I believe Jesus has said to do in his word. I'm going to do it anyway, even though I have struggle and doubt. The question there is kind of like, which one is of greater faith? Is it the one that just intuitively deep down inside has no questions? Or is it the one that maybe has questions, uncertainties, but does it anyway? See, I think no matter how we slice it out, real faith is displayed not in how we feel, not even how we think, but real faith is displayed in what we do. That's where the grits hit the skillet, right? When it's like, okay, when push comes to shove, it's not just a platitude. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a a sense of feeling that rises up inside of me and bursts out in song. But it says, I am willing to do the hard thing, whether I'm positive or I'm uncertain, but I'm going to do it no matter what, because that is the most sincere form of faith. See, that's the kind of faith that really kind of segregates out the the kind of emotive version from what I think Jesus is really looking for throughout the Gospels. And and I'll give you an example of this. Here's a story that he tells in Matthew chapter 21. He says, what do you think? So this man had two sons and he went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I will not. But then afterward, he changed his mind and he went. Then he went to another son and he said the same thing. And that son said, I will go, sir. But then he didn't go. Which of these two did the will of his father, right? And then from that, there's a discussion because he's talking with the Pharisees, right? And, and and so then it kind of shapes up to be like, hey, you guys claim it, but you don't do it. And the tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, they're actually pressing into the kingdom in ways that you're not. And I always think that's a fascinating thing because he doesn't say former prostitutes and former tax collectors and former sinners. It's still put in the present tense, which is just a weird thing to me, just personally, side note, kind of interesting, right? So from that, when I look at that story, you see that there's a difference. There can be some that say, I will do it. I believe it. I'm behind it. It's authoritative. I'm your guy. And then they don't do it. And then there's the others like, nah, I don't know, man. I'm not going to do that. That's dumb. That's stupid. But then they do it, right? The essence of the story there, for us today at least, is faith is not simply saying I have a conviction. Faith has to be a conviction that is actionable. 
Now, that's not earning your salvation. That's not the point at all, right? So sometimes people want to go down that road and be like, oh, so now you're saying we have to earn our salvation. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is Jesus said, if you really believe it, you're going to do it. And if you don't do it, you really don't believe it, right? And and, and this is, I think, of, of great value to us when it comes then to what Jesus calls and prescribes his people to do, right? Because... I'm not a fan of legalism. I have no interest in legalism. Anybody that knows me knows I have no interest in legalism. I'm always kind of surprised like how I get defined by people. They can't quite decide sometimes if I'm too liberal or too legalistic. It's always kind of fun to oscillate those gears. Like sometimes I'm expecting too much and other times I'm expecting too little and I always kind of laugh because I'm like, I don't know where to put myself either, I guess, depending on those criteria. But when I look at Jesus, he's really, really clear throughout the Gospels that his followers are actionable individuals, and in that they're actionable to things that he values. I think sometimes in religion you can have legalism, and in religion you can have rigidity because we want people to be actionable to things that Jesus doesn't care about as much as religion cares about, or Jesus doesn't care as much about as maybe our our particular uh, Christian tribe values certain things or certain criteria or certain assumptions, right? But Jesus certainly is like, hey, man, on the the last day, on the final exam, I've got a series of questions. Did you do this, right? I mean, you see that throughout the Gospels that Jesus anticipates that we're going to be engaged in what he cares about. And that, again, is going to come back to then looking through the Gospels and saying, what does Jesus really care about? What are the things that really matter to him? And that's loving God and loving your neighbor and loving your enemy and being different than the world and having the sense of of focus and fortitude and trust and spirit reliance to which that cycles our life. And there is in that then something that people go, you're different, you're compelling, you're odd and awkward and strange in this world, but in a way that seems peace-filled and has a burden lifted. I mean, I think about that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, when Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Like the, the faith and, 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 and walk with Jesus that we are to embody should look like a people who have weight lifted who are doing this with him and doing it in such a way that people see him and us. And then we can say to them, what you're seeing is not me. You're seeing Jesus. Like our lives should really inhabit that space. That should be then kind of the North Star that we operate off of. That's the bullseye on the dartboard that we're throwing our darts at. And we just say, Jesus, I just want to really look like you. I don't want to look like religion. And I don't want to simply look like the stereotypical vision of a Christian I want to look like you. I want to look like Christ in my world. That's going to take heavy reliance on the Spirit. That's going to take a heavy um, sense of Jesus, less of me, more of you, right? Which is Paul saying in Galatians too. Like that's this whole idea. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, right? Who died and rose for me. Like that whole idea, is the thing that is to then drive us. And I believe if that's the place that we live where we're like, you know what, sometimes I have certain doubts, but I'm going to do what Jesus calls me to anyway, because I think if there's anything we as Christians tend to doubt, it's actually we doubt like that Jesus really expects us to do the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, honestly, I was having a conversation with somebody this week that just talking about some of the nuances of the Sermon on the Mount, and they were like, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm just not doing that. I mean, I mean, it's just really kind of funny to me. Like, you know, like when we just look, yeah, I'm not uh, now. If, if I was sued, I'm not paying double. 
I'm not doing that. I appreciate the honesty. Like, that's great. You know, it's like, hey, if somebody punches me, I'm punching them back, man. Eye for an eye. I totally appreciate the honesty, right? But Jesus asks us to do some pretty wild stuff. And I think it takes a lot of faith to actually believe that that will change the world. It's much easier to say, no, Jesus was naive or Jesus was idealistic or Jesus was using hyperbole. You're not really supposed to do those things. They're just sort of generalities that we think are nice. They're great on a bumper sticker, stitch it on a pillow, slap it on a coffee mug, call it good, give a keychain, move along. But I actually think that Jesus said that because the world changes through those things. And I've seen examples, even of people who don't follow Jesus, don't believe that Jesus is God, that did Jesus's things and Jesus's way and it changed their worlds, right? Like Gandhi totally used the Jesus model. Martin Luther King, who was a pastor and a Christian, used the Jesus model, right? So it changes things. And my hope and my prayer is that we believe that the Jesus model changes things. It takes a lot of care, takes a lot of belief takes a lot of, even when I doubt, I'm going to do it anyway, because that's the nature of faith. Faith is not, I'm certain in every single way, this is going to work out the way I want it to. Rather saying, I'm certain that this is the way that he's honored. And this is the way he will change things. Whether that works out good for me in this life, or it doesn't work out good for me in this life. That's not what I measure it by. I don't look at the outcomes and if they're favorable for me, but rather I look at how these are the things that he favors for great kingdom outcomes. Because his mission is to bless the world. His mission is to rescue the nations. His mission is to change lives and to see lives move from the angle of how do I get things done for me in earthly ways to how do I give myself away for others in kingdom ways. And I believe the more that we're doing that and that becomes our focus and our drive, the more we will be effective everyday missionaries.